episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar as we Mikes are once again slipping into our favorite tuxedos and brandishing our favorite very small, tiny firearms. I don't think that's ever been explained as to why a Walter K. PP7 has ever been his gun of choice, but it can't do much damage. I have thoughts about gunshots. We'll get to those in this episode. But it is another James Bond character study episode, part four. We are reviewing the films of Timothy Dalton stepping into the super spy role as 007 today. As always, we'll have a non-spoiler section, then a spoiler section. But for purposes of this episode, I, Mike One, am going to review the License to Kill, while also Mike here will be reviewing The Living Daylights. And I'm going to try really hard not to do more than 15 minutes on the theme song by AHA. <laughs> it's a good the one. The Living Daylights. It's, it's so, a good one. Oh, it's magical. It's just so <laughs> magical. I love it so much. So I'm probably going to do 20 to 30 minutes on it. Good. No, no, no. I think, uh, I think as promised, uh, we're having fun spreading out this series, Mike. The James Bond character study is going to be coming to everybody monthly now. We've already done three episodes already on Sean Connery, George Lazenby, and Roger Moore. This is episode number four, like you said. So seek out our playlist on SoundCloud there to find all four of these. Yeah, we've been stretching these out over the months, like Mike told you, and Timothy Dalton is going to be our May episode. We'll be tackling Pierce Brosnan and all his Bond films in June, and then we will be doing Daniel Craig in the lead-up to No Time to Die, which was supposed to come out in April. You know, when we kind of started this series, but life, as Jeff Goldblum says, has a way. The wonderful world of seamless editing will bring us back (laughs) and get us back on track here as we talk about the getting into character role, and Mike, let's talk about how Mr. Dalton found himself playing the role of James Bond. Yeah, Timothy Dalton, he was born in Colwyn Bay in Wales of the United Kingdom. He moved to Belper in Derbyshire as a teenager. Uh, I mean, if you were going to make up towns for an English mm-hmm. setting in your screenplay, wouldn't those be some of them? <laughs> they literally probably are in some of my spec scripts, I'm not going to lie. And I, I never been there. I never knew of there. Belper in Derbyshire. <laughs> Burfordshire, my shire. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Anyway, I, I we're just having to giggle fit. Yeah, of, it's 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 a of, day, people. I, I apologize. We're losing it. This quarantine is going on too yeah, long. Yeah, that's exactly what up. it is. Anyway, Mike, Roger Moore was the Bond before Timothy Dalton, and Roger Moore went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art like Timothy Dalton did in his teenage years. He also spent his summers touring with the National Youth Theater. Yeah, so Dalton's a true pros pro. He left the Academy early to join Birmingham Repertory Theater Company and quickly began acting for the BBC in various roles on television, including Saturday while Sunday. My <laughs> I God, made you I say feel that. Like I wrote it joke- that way. Yeah, I feel like purposely. you're joking with me. I'm just reading the script, and it's just fake things that you're throwing in for your enjoyment. And if it is, shame on me for not preparing. No, that's uh, where the apostrophe was. It really was unbelievable. But I, I like. I don't know if it was popular. Like I'm, I'm including it here. Like it was a huge popular thing that he did. I don't know. It's just a funny name, so I made you say it. Good. Uh, Dalton then made his feature film debut in the Catherine Hepburn, Peter O'Toole, Anthony Hopkins Oscar winning The Lion in Winter. Awesome movie, by the way. So go watch that. That's a good, probably a good quarantine movie because they're all stuck at the castle together just arguing about who's going to be king next. It's great. Anyway. uh, Like our pre-production meetings. That's right. Uh, Dalton was offered James Bond, I think, after The Lion in Winter, not too long after that, in 1969, to replace Sean Connery before the role eventually went to George Lazenby on Her Majesty's Secret Service there. So Dalton declines thinking he's too young for the part. He was asked again after Diamonds Are Forever before Roger Moore took over, but again, Dalton said no for the same reason. So, although he would uh, focus on theater, he occasionally took roles in film and TV, Wuthering Heights, Mary Queen of Scots. Every British thespian is going to be in <laughs> Wuthering Heights and Mary Queen of Scots right. and you know, Jane Eyre. and, and uh, everybody's CV. Yeah. Agatha Christie stuff. Anyway, Naturally. that's his 1970s. And uh, he begins to slowly cross over to Hollywood stuff. It was a Hollywood production of Flash Gordon in Scotland in 1980 that he did. And for the third time after that, he was offered James Bond. But uh, he, I don't, it doesn't say if he accepted it, but it seems like Roger Moore refused to retire and did For Your Eyes Only. So he, three times, no charms there. 
Yeah, we went back and talked about Roger Moore's elder days as an elder Bond and how Grandpa that kind of came across on cinema. So <laughs> Dalton's 1980s included TV roles in Jane I- Jane Eyre. Is Air. it Eyre or Eyre, Mike? It's Eyre. Eyre? Like Air Jordan. Eyre? Jane Eyre Jordan and a whole bunch of TV <laughs> movies before he was approached by James Bond producer Cubby Broccoli. Again... <laughs> Fake names. I'm being puppy zucchini. Yeah, (laughs) Cubby Broccoli came up to Dalton in 1986. I have no way of verifying if I'm speaking the truth right now, if I'm honestly just. I I feel like Ron Burgundy. Yeah, you're Ron Burgundy (laughs) reading what I wrote you in the teleprompter. It's great. I'm enjoying this thoroughly. (laughs) So Kitten Squash came up to Timmy Dalton here in 86 with an offer to play 007. Unfortunately, Dalton had to decline yet again since he was contractually obligated to do another film. Well, after a courtship with Sam Neill, imagine how that would have turned out. And another scheduling refusal from Pierce Brosnan. The Bond producers circled back to Mr. Dalton for a fifth time when he would finally agree. Yes, finally. Took five times. He's that uh, Bette Midler in, uh, no, I won't do it. I can't do it. And he finally <laughs> does it. And he's and he's, he's pretty good. And he, he makes some money uh, for them with uh, 1987's The Living Daylights. That makes $191.2 million on a $40 million budget, beating out competitors, action movie competitors, the likes of Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. Uh, the follow-up comes out, License to Kill, that Mike's going to review today. That only makes $156.2 bucks, though. I, this always happens with franchises. Like, people aren't that excited to do the next one if it doesn't make money. I mean, that's just the bottom line, right? If A Quiet Place 2 doesn't make money, there's going to be no talk of A Quiet Place 3. Anyway, this one didn't make as, as much money on a $36 million budget, and it, it went up against all kinds of sequels to just legendary properties. Right. Indiana Jones, Lethal Weapon, Back to the Future, Ghostbusters. Of course, you had Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, as well as a little film known as Batman that year. But Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, just that put the nail in the license to kill coffin, <laughs> I'm sure. I always knew Rick Moranis would be the one to finally bring That's down right. James Bond. Uh, <laughs> he would be a great that. Bond villain, Rick Moranis, right? Like a meta Bond villain? Like you I wouldn't mean, expect it? Like a Mr. Magoo type Bond villain where like mm. 007 shoots at him and he ducks in time to pick up the newspaper on his driveway and the bullet ricochets and hits comes back to hit Bond in the face. That type of villain? Sure, I could see that. <laughs> but uh, speaking of Timothy Dalton wrapping up his production profile here, Dalton was still ready to reprise Bond one more time in the property of a lady and... All that that entails for the powder keg that would have been in 2020, but that would have been his third Bond film in 1991. But he was stalled by corporate litigation between MGM, uh, United Artists, and Dan Jack LLC. Dalton stayed attached as Bond until 94 when he finally grew tired of waiting around, giving up the part, and allowing Pierce Brosnan to take his turn. The only thing I could think of when reading this is, could you imagine with today's internet and tabloids and how holy these long-standing franchise properties are held if mm-hmm. anybody went to any actor if mgm went to any actor five times to ask them to fill the role of james bond and they just kept getting told no i mean they'd be raked across coals in the trades they wouldn't go back to them if right it, if it was they, that well, for that reason they knew they'd get right. skewered right i mean the way the internet is spread to everyone these days yeah they, you won't get to ask Jessica Chastain to be in It Chapter 2 twice. Right, exactly. You know? So exactly. never mind, never mind something like this, this high profile. Anyway, uh, let's get some box office tallies, Mike. You had two films, you had $76 million of budget, and you had earnings that totaled to $347.4 million. That's a ratio of 4.57 to 1. So not bad business. I mean, especially talking about the mid-80s, that's hmm. pretty damn lucrative, I would think, uh, in terms of making money. So Dalton is a financial success. Uh, is he a Bond-type success? We could talk about that as we go into the historical significance of Timothy Dalton's performance on the film industry. Mike, what did we think about Dalton's roles here as Mr. 007? Well, first and foremost, as a coach, I must say like he is easily the worst athlete of the bonds so far <laughs> he's a terrible athlete they're really stretching with all the stunt work like he's struggling and he's goofy when like when he has to run into somebody it is just disastrous like yeah. you can tell when they don't give him the stunt man i'm like yeah. oh no like that they was gave, an elbow that would knock over nobody they took out the guesswork in, in a license to kill because he was supposed to be hanging out of a helicopter at one point yeah. 
and it was like like they had the actual footage of the helicopter in the air, and then when they would shoot from the scene from inside the helicopter to make this big dramatic scene, uh, it was so painfully green screened. It was it took you right out of the movie. It's like okay, the guy's wig is falling down right. on his forehead. <laughs> right, the stunt exactly. man. It was <laughs> bad. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, he. This is a stupid criticism, but I think he's very theatrical in the role. Like he turns away from his co-star in some dramatic moments just to stare slightly askew of the lens. And he just <laughs> delivers like uh, this this look of smoldering intensity, as Dwayne Johnson would, would like to say. Like he's going <laughs> to deliver a soliloquy in the theater, right? But he forgets he's not in the theater and he just is intense and he says some cheesy line still thinks that happens on the set lot. of jane air jordan over there and going <laughs> oh he was i guess that's something to be said that as much as we think the bond character a spoof throughout history kind of or at least he maybe he's turned into a caricature of himself at times with these movies you can certainly make that argument i think that you got to give the actors credit because these are polished thespians that do have these long legacy backgrounds that have done all the serious theater work they're trying to bring this air of seriousness to this character i just think they were kind of up against it at times and i will certainly argue that in license to kill at least well he's by far the most accomplished actor of the group right. by far like roger moore was perhaps the most accomplished before that and he was just in a lot of tv series right, like exactly. sean connery was a newcomer george lazenby was a male model who lied to get the job so here <laughs> you have a legitimate thespian handling the role and yeah, I think I think he does a good job with it. I mean, he mixes the charm and and some physicality, I guess, with the help of his stunt people. I think, you know, he's the least dickish of the Bonds in a way. Like, I think he's shorter than all the other Bonds. I mean, he doesn't have that big swinging, you know what, mentality where he's kind of talking down to people, at, you know, like the other ones. Yeah, I don't disagree, but I also had the hardest time of accepting him as Bond outside of Grandpa Moore. Because he just, to me, and this is such like a 1980s studio executive head criticism, but he just looks kind of doofusy to me. Like <laughs> I don't see, I don't see this suave debonair James Bond. I don't see Sean Connery with this guy. He's got kind of a comb over because his forehead might be a little big, and you see the skin coming. It's so, it's such you know facial criticisms, and it's so shallow of me. But it's just like that's not James Bond. You know what he looks like? He looks like a man tiger. Is that am I, am I wrong? Doesn't he look feline? <laughs> he looks feline. Like he's but I, I agree with you. Like when he walks into a room, like in a normal schmo room, like if one of our rooms, yeah, you'd notice him. But like if he walked into a you know big casino in a movie, like everybody doesn't stop and stare at him like they would right. Bond and and whatever girl he's got on his arm. So I don't like, know about a man tiger, but when I the guy I couldn't get out of my mind was Mad Dog Russo. Chris Russo from Mike and the Mad Dog. He does. He's British yeah. Mad Dog Russo. That's exactly <laughs> That's what he looks right. Like to me. No, like... you're terrible at these things too. These comps. <laughs> He's look-alike comps, but I think that's exactly right. Get one every once in a while. Yeah, blind squirrels and nuts. But Mike, I think like these movies were trying to go the serious route. If you listen to any Timothy Dalton interview, he's like, I'm trying to get Bond back to his roots, back to the novels, back to the source material, trying to honor, pay homage to the source material. They're they're honoring the you know current events of the day with the drug war in both our movies and with uh, Russia's war with Afghanistan in my film. So do you think like the tone was right for for Timothy Dalton tackling this part? For the time, absolutely. I mean, this was... I thought Nancy Reagan might have penned the screenplay to, to License to Kill because it was all about the Reagan war on drugs. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what it was. You can't be more timely than that. It was about drug cartels trend and, and they're tricking their ways to get cocaine across the borders and the millions of dollars they're making off and the corrupting the youth and blah, blah, blah. That's exactly what this was. It was like ripped from the headlines of a 1989 newspaper. So I certainly felt that. And he's not like the insatiable sex pot in my movie, at least. He's not the guy that, uh, you know, tallies up the super high body count in my movie. Well. Again, your movie is licensed to kill. So I'm guessing they upped it after the after the Living Daylights because he didn't kill that many people. He's in the Living a brutal murderer in my movie. <laughs> like not even okay. just a secret agent, just a bad guy, which I'm going to say for spoilers. But there's a little tease. 
I seen that movie years ago. I'm, not, I'm going to be of no help for you today, but I'm, I'm curious. But I did see that movie in college. I remember not liking it. But anyway, I, I do think that uh, The Living Daylights was a pretty good movie, and then it went on for another hour for me. <laughs> right. And that's where I'm at with it. How, how, overall, with your movie, did you think it was any good? No. But, well, look, it's an unfair criticism because I went in, I was stupid, and I looked at the scores beforehand, and I saw like a 77 on Rotten Tomatoes, 77, mm-hmm. 67 split. It's got a 50 or something meta score so it's not you know a putrid movie and i let that you know dictate my expectations and Hmm. i was just let down because of that so if i went in with a clean slate i probably would have been higher on it but because my expectations you know were kind of skewed through my own fault which i try to never do anyway going into a movie i try to go in with a clean slate but i didn't and now i'm disappointed by it so of course i am but I, i blame myself more than the bond movie but license to kill certainly does have its pitfalls as well well the the living daylights the theme song raised the bar almost too high I'm with for my you. movie as well. My, Gladys Knight did mine, and it was nice. one of those so bad, but once you got a minute and a half into the song, it was like, this is a fucking banger. <laughs> I was listening to AHA sing this song, and Take On Me, because that would play next naturally, on YouTube. Naturally, naturally. <laughs> you know, those two, like, the last two days of my life. That's probably why I didn't watch License to Kill, because I was just... <laughs> Too busy. If I had a dollar for every time you didn't do something for MMO because you were just rocking out to AHA. <laughs> oh, it's great. Just uh, The best Bond song that, that I've loved the most. Let's just put it that way. And it's a terrible song. I recognize I have a terrible taste in music, but I love this song. Right, and that's they exactly actually get some of the synth of the 80s, you know, the 1980s synth band scene stuff. Nothing better. Nothing better. Not a music critic, but they put it into the Bond theme throughout the beginning of the movie, too. So I I thought that was brilliant. There's a lot of cool stuff that I think uh, we want to get into spoilers to talk about because even the the bad stuff is fun to talk about with these episodes, right? I mean, that's the whole point of doing these early Bond episodes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For the most part. (laughs) Let's do it. Let's get into spoilers. Spoilers ahead! It's all so boring here, Margo. There's nothing but playboys and tennis pros. If only I could find a real man. I need to use your phone. She'll call you back. Who are you? Bond, James Bond. Exercise control 007 here. I'll report in an hour. Won't you join me? Better make that too. This is a spoiler. All right, so we're going into the spoiler section here of the fourth James Bond character study episode in this James Bond character study series brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. We are covering all things Timothy Dalton Bond today with myself, Mike One, having reviewed License to Kill and also Mike having reviewed The Living Daylights, the only two Bond movies where Dalton played the super spy from Britain. Mike Let's talk about our firks. Firks? That's not a word. Let's talk about our first section, The Spy Who's Not Me, talking about the fantasy elements of Bond, why we want to but could never be James Bond himself. Well, the opening sequence usually establishes this. That's why this is the first segment of our Bond reviews in the spoiler section, because I have a skydiving first scene. Oh, nice. It was really cool. They're skydiving onto the Rock of Gibraltar. Now, of course, well, we've all done that, yes. They're getting attacked by monkeys, and it's really funny. It's really what? funny. You got like this, flying monkeys, like monkeys, like just random monkeys that apparently live on the rock of Gibraltar. <laughs> so wait, 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 wait. This is one of the rare times neither one of us watched the other's movie beforehand. <laughs> so walk me through this. So they're skydiving. They land on the rock of Gibraltar, and they're like, right. "Oh my God! Thank God we landed on the rock of monkeys." <laughs> It's not like a wave of monkeys. It's just random intermittent monkeys. And it happens, I think, three times. I think they only attack them twice. And then the monkeys are just like yelling at Bond another time. Like, ah! <laughs> you know, like that. Just later on, in the, like during a car chase, it's just, yeah, there's a monkey screaming like that. But it's pretty funny. Like, I was, I laughed hard each time. And it, it definitely, you know, they're going for the serious tone, right? Because the game is afoot. They have this training exercise that becomes real. And two other double O's are killed before Bond is facing off with the, the, the bad guy. 
And uh, it's like this wacky scenario where it goes from skydiving to, you know, this these fights on on the mountaintop, on the cliffs. And then, of course, a, a, a car chase where Bond is, you know, breaking his way through the top of a truck. And then, I mean, the, the way the people die in these 80s movies, Mike, <laughs> they die horrible, <laughs> flaming Painful, yes. screaming yes. deaths. Yes. So, I mean, he's not like a raging murderer in my film, but like he gets his money's worth on who he does kill. Yeah, I like the openings. They're always these big, extravagant, lush set pieces where there is always at least one fantastical murder that mm-hmm. has no gravity attached to it whatsoever. It's just like, oh, that was a henchman. He's supposed to die and fall off the cliff with the goofy scream. Yeah! down the hill there like it's it's totally a bit tongue-in-cheek even though like you said it is presented as serious it's tough for us to take serious compared to what james bond has turned into in 2020 with the daniel craig films but i have the same thing the first opening scene i have i have a shootout at an airport to start the movie but bond is in a tuxedo because it's felix's wedding day and bond is the best man but they (laughs) got a call that this big bad drug dealer sanchez just happens to be in the area so they have to go pick him up naturally and (laughs) so they have this big shootout jeeps are crashing into barrels and shit's exploding and bond (laughs) is jumping from helicopter down on the ground back up into a helicopter sanchez gets away but they still return to the wedding in time to parachute in groom and best man and land on the carpet right outside the church in this grand entrance like the hangover like like right. uh, a great just uh road trip comedy that's right that's perfect exactly. oh that's funny man that's yeah i'm gonna have to watch this one again i guess it's, it's been like 20 years since I, i've watched it but I, I just couldn't get away from the aha song in my case <laughs> it's all right so the reason why these movies are, are so watchable or one of the main reasons why is you like they all globe hop in, in my case you know we're in bratislava czechoslovakia we're a night at the symphony where he meets the girl of the whole movie like there's really one girl in this entire film for once we have bond like just with he's a one woman wow one he goes solo man. huh well monogamous uh, i shouldn't say that because <laughs> the end of my first sequence mm-hmm. There's this woman on a yacht, Mike. There's this woman on a yacht, and she is saying, I just wish I had a real man around. And then, of course, Bond parachutes in <laughs> onto the yacht. And uh, there's, Well, this uh, isn't the rock of Gibraltar. Yeah, no, there's... Oh, there, I'll, I'll have the line in the next segment. But anyway, he's at the symphony in Bratislava. He's at a huge estate in uh, in Great Britain with where, where M is. I mean, they go to uh, Tangiers. They're in Afghanistan with the whole final finale sequence. I mean, they're, they're really globe-hopping in my movie. Where'd they go in yours? They went south of the border. They had the wedding to start, which I presume was, was in... I was going to say England, but maybe that was somewhere south of the border as well. But they make a big point to keep saying, calling it south of the border, south of the border, because that's, of course, where all the drugs are in the 1980s. And again, Nancy Reagan wrote this script, so it has to be a bit stereotypical, if not outright racist. So that's where the majority of this takes place. But there was a lot of maybe not globe hopping so much as there was like setting hopping because he's spends a good part of this movie underwater fighting literally underwater in scuba gear. He spends a good part of the movie chasing a submarine or, or like fish hooking onto this big yacht that's sailing away. And he ends up water skiing behind it. And then he's on land and he's driving this gigantic Mack truck down this <laughs> steep hill, this narrow roadway or, or he ends up in a laboratory. So there's a lot of different set pieces where maybe he's not going country hopping like we're used to, but he definitely ends up in the usual James Bond situations where you have these extravagant sets. Well, that's pretty cool. I, I think uh, I think he's also pretty resourceful in my film. Like he is taking a, ch- like they have this big gag, this running comedy gag about this cello that the girl has to go retrieve and he's wasting his time getting the cello and he's mm-hmm. making fun of her because it takes him forever to stuff it in the, his back seat. <laughs> anyway, the cello comes in handy <laughs> later on because they use it to literally sled down a mountain. Oh, nice. Being chased by bad guy skiers. <laughs> 
And it's, it's just brilliant. Like, he is super resourceful. I think, you know, Timothy Dal- Dalton's inability to, like, perform the stunts himself, it kind of forced their creativity a little bit. Like, there's this big thing uh, where the bad guy has to kill one of the B- Bond's friends with just, like, an electronic door. There's several scenes, Mike, where he is an expert with parachutes. Uh, at the beginning sequence, he parachutes his way out of the back of this Jeep that is falling to a flaming death and then there's he does the same thing at the end of the movie when the a giant cargo plane is 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 falling to a into a mountain because the girl can't drive and that's going to be a problem later on <laughs> but like he is like really resourceful he's really clever which i think the writers were forced to do because you know he had just this lack of athletic ability they may have gone too far with uh, with my movie because my movie came out chronologically after yours. It reminded me a little bit of like the old Adam West Batman. Mm-hmm. Like he's swimming <laughs> underwater and he can't be detected by this enemy submarine at one yeah. point. But yeah. don't worry because he has this perfect contraption that makes him look like just the biggest devil ray or manta ray you've ever seen in your entire life that has that happens to have human flippers tailing behind it but don't worry (laughs) about it because it's just a manta like there was some convenience there's always convenience with james bond we know this but it wasn't like their convenience of they wrote it away because q had already addressed it and boy do i have a problem with q in my movie oh really that when we talk to it yeah a huge but q is is actually a star in my movie but good i'm glad to hear that i'm glad to hear that because all he did in my movie was, well, we'll talk about it. I guess there's another tease for you. But yeah, uh, one, I can't swim that long uh, underwater without an oxygen tank, as no, James can't. Bond had to hear. Uh, <laughs> two, I can't drive all these contraptions that both James Bond and his partner here, Bouvier, who was a woman who was written actually pretty well, uh, they can drive everything. Uh, and uh, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to skydive into my own wedding someday. <laughs> no, you won't. Uh... <laughs> And I won't let you, but uh, but in in my movie, I think it was pretty cool to see how the uh, the bad guys were pretty capable. They were pretty capable, I would say, through ninety percent of it. Yeah, so, so I had the same thing. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. So the biggest thing for me is like I would die immediately if I had to go up against like a, a, a blonde super spy like is in this movie. Like this guy is a man of a million disguises, and he's really kicking ass the whole film until Bond like just. Uh, gets lucky at the end of the at, at the at the end of the movie and th- and he falls 20,000 feet to his death off that cargo plane but <laughs> you know that old chest well it's good to know your limitations as a super spy is what i'll say you could be my super spy any day mike still well he's holding on to bond's boot at the end of the movie and he's you know they're they're falling out of the back of this cargo plane holding on to this net filled with all the heroin bags mm-hmm. and he, bond cuts the net so that all the heroin bags are leaving and then he cuts his boot off again this is james bond being really resourceful he cuts his boot off lace by lace while the <laughs> the blonde guy just goes no no it's, it's terrible it's almost like too long but it's kind of funny and of course he he clinging clinging to the boot as he just falls to his death for hours. This is so high. And there's the 80s ridiculousness shining through. Exactly. Anyway, Mike, we got to live and let dad joke. This is the section for the best quotes and one-liners from our Bond movies. Uh, You go ahead and start. Yeah, so not a quote, and you talked about your aha. I already said this a little bit, but the License to Kill song, I mean, here's just some of the lyrics to start this you know, enterprise that you're going through this journey with 007 with got a license to kill. And you know, I'm going straight for your heart. Got a license to kill anyone who tries to tear us apart. This might be Gladys Knight's best work. No, it's not. (laughs) I can definitively say that much, but it's, it's pretty good though. It's pretty awesomely bad. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember my song because it's just naked ladies and silhouettes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm kidding. I love my song. I listen to it all week. But I think uh, at the beginning of this section, I promised a line at the end of my first sequence. So Bond lands on the yacht, and he literally just rips the phone away from the woman who's eyeing him up, right? (laughs) Because she's on the phone saying, why can't I have a real man? Right? And and, And he goes, he goes, I need the phone, lady. And he just, and he, uh... And he dials somebody quick, and he's like, I'll report in an hour. And she's like, why won't you join me? And she hands him, like, this uh, glass of champagne. He goes, and he's still angry. He's like, better make that, too. (laughs) Oh, I got to hate have sex with this woman, but I'm going to do it because I'm a spy. (laughs) He does. He he didn't change his face. It was funny. Uh, The other line... 
pretty early in the movie because he has a chance to kill like the cellist. He has a chance to kill Kara, who's the the main character, who's the main female character in this. And he instead like just shoots her in the hand. She was <laughs> supposed to, or she was uh, like the opposite sniper. So you think she's like a double agent. Turns out she was supposed to shoot blanks at the guy in the beginning that Bond was trying to save, be- save because the guy in the beginning was actually the bad guy at the end of the movie. And he was trying to du- double cross the British Secret Service you know, and make them believe he was on their side. But in the end, he's trying to sell half a billion dollars worth of heroin. So anyway. D- didn't that happen in, in one of the Mission Impossible movies? Something out of uh, like a, an opera where somebody was supposed to shoot at somebody, but there was blanks in the guns and Ethan Hunt was in the middle. Or am I thinking of something else? You're definitely thinking of a Mission Impossible movie. You're okay, definitely. Good. Like there was four assassins in the Mission Impossible movie at the opera. Right, right, So this right, was right, kind of right. like that, but this was outside the opera, so a little different. Gotcha. But okay. It makes sense. It's a derivative. Uh, it's a derivative industry. Let's just say that much. <laughs> Mike, he says, I only kill professionals. That girl didn't know the first end of a rifle from a, from the other. I must have scared the living daylights out of her. And then he smiles at the oh, camera. Good God. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was pretty good. That's the old Family Guy joke. I love it when a movie works in the name of its title into the dialogue seamlessly. <laughs> terrible, terrible. I'm terrible. Superman for a quest for peace. Uh, I actually didn't have. I was surprised by the lack of bad one-liners. Now, yeah. d- take that with a grain of salt because I kind of zoned out at times because I wasn't enthralled with my movie. No, me either. too. I'm the same boat. Yeah. Like I definitely missed a couple. I probably should have looked it up afterwards. There was one time where Bond ended up throwing a hench, a random henchman into this like sliding drawer filled of maggots because they were supposed to be used to feed the sharks, and he just <laughs> throws the henchman in. Bon appetit. <laughs> okay. That's pretty good. Not Great bad, job. Great job, James. Slight smirk. Slight smirk <laughs> yeah, from exactly. the audience. Uh, I, you know, I don't have a ton either. I mean, when he's trying to stuff the giant cello case into the backseat of his car, he's like, why didn't you learn the violin? <laughs> That's such a passive-aggressive... Like, that's something a married couple would say to each other. (laughs) And then later on in the film, uh, when they're about to use the cello case... And then, they, of course, they use the cello as, like, to steer the the sled. The cello case is their sled. They both sit on the open cello case to sled down this giant mountain covered with snow. Mm -hmm. And then they use the cello to help them steer. And he's like, I'm glad... He's such an asshole. Um, he goes, I'm glad I forced us to take your cello. <laughs> so I me, me, me. I'm the great spy. Lunatic. <laughs> uh, but my last one, the last one for this section, this isn't even a witty remark. It just was the only time in this movie I literally laughed out loud for the wrong <laughs> reasons. Bond ends up at this bar trying to make contact with for the first time with this woman named Bouvier who has all this information and he knows drug lord Sanchez is sending his cronies out to kill Bouvier at this bar. And she knows they're coming. So Bond and her are sitting at this table watching the cronies come in. And she turns to him and says, are you carrying? And he shows his little Walter KPP7. And he mm-hmm. go, she goes, tisk, tisk, tisk. And then she pulls out from under a regular bar table. This is a regular bar. This isn't like a super spy bar or anything. Mm-hmm. Just this gigantic shotgun <laughs> that she had to have just been sitting on her lap. How did she get that in there without anyone saying anything? I, I laughed. I literally laughed out loud. She pulls out this giant shotgun, and of course, mayhem ensues, and everybody gets away because nobody ever gets hurt because it wasn't the finale. So, all right, maybe these movies kind of suffered from not having as much comedy as the past films, but I know they're, they they weren't going for comedy like we said in the, in right. the non-spoiler half. They were going for a more serious bond. They were trying to downplay some of the one-liners, but they couldn't help it. Like, you get into awesomely bad material with a Without lot of this Without question, stuff. which I think you do for most 80s movies anyway. Correct. <laughs> I mean, let's be That's honest. Correct. That's correct. So, all right, that'll trans. There's no way to transition into this next segment because it's Doctor. Please, oh God, no. Bonds issues with women. All right. So there's a new money penny in the living daylights, and apparently, after she invites him over to listen to her Barry Manilow collection, because that's where we are. Love it. Oh my God, that speaks of, to my heart. Yeah, this timeline of human existence. We're in the Barry Manilow age of it all. 
and a, and you hear like play Copacabana again. No, I wish you heard <laughs> Copacabana or that voice. No, you hear, and she like you know jumps up a little bit. So basically, he slapped her on the ass twice. They made, they goodbye. played the actual sound. Yeah, they had to make sure that you knew his hand made contact. She couldn't have just, he could have just walked away. Right. Like he may not have done it in real life, but does he have to? I mean, what the hell? I mean, I, that couldn't even have worked in the 1980s, right? I mean, Jesus. I don't want to know. It's Mike. a dark timeline for women, and it always has been. Were your women written capably in yours? Yes and no. Okay. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save that to, for the next segment because that's kind of the, the bigger picture of the, all this. He does, in another moment, use the girlfriend of uh, John Reese davies in this movie. The girlfriend wife he uses her at a, as a diversion because he, he literally strips her of her robe. So, and so she's standing. Yeah, she's standing there half naked as the henchman walks in the room to save John Reese davies and then he beats up the henchman, and then he then he gives her a shirt back. So that's fucked up. And finally, at the end of the film, it was super fucked up. Was basically there's one woman on the plane, and everybody's like, "Would you like some coffee? Yes, I would love some. Oh, yes." And they're all, you know, they're having this. Basically, Bond is there on the plane. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Bond's not there. But all the bad guys are together. And then they all look at the woman to serve them the coffee. I was like, Jesus fucking Oh, my Christ. God. That's not subtle at all. Well, at least they were the bad guys in that scene, right? Bad guys. Yeah, they're so scum. They're, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. That's great. I was actually surprised. I mean, for as... I mean, you say you're going to get to it, so maybe it gets worse for you. But at least at this point, like, I was surprised with how capably the women were written in... Uh, License to Kill. Oh, good. I mean, Bouvier is is written pretty much as a bona fide ass kicker with a bigger hmm. gun, and she's the one wise enough to wear a bulletproof vest when she knows she's being hunted. She demands Bond treat her with respect. So that's all well and good, but like, literally, as after her demanding Bond treat her with respect, he seduces her mid sentence, and she falls for it. And it's like, come on, man. Uh. Like, so much of these female characters in all these movies are just so emotionally vacant. And yeah. their happiness or fulfillment or emptiness is only dictated by how James Bond feels about them. And it's so, like, they, have you met a woman in your life? <laughs> have you ever talked to them about what they do in their day-to-day? It's not all just about one dude all the time. It's just... Speaking, speaking up for all writers? No. Yeah. No, <laughs> Right. Right. Most writers. <laughs> right. And then there's another woman that comes in halfway through, Lupe, who is the mistress to the big drug lord Sanchez. Of course, Bond seduces her as well, except in this role, Bond seduces her after already having seduced Bouvier, and Bouvier catches him putting the moves on Lupe and knows they slept together. So that's when Q slides in and is like, hey, Bouvier, don't worry about it, honey. He's just the secret agent. He's got to use everything at his disposal, completely wiping away all the wrongdoing that he's doing by basically just having sex with multiple women and not caring about their feelings whatsoever. Hmm. Oh, God, James Bond, you'll never learn. <laughs> but it's okay, Mike. It's okay, because the end of the movie, he goes back to Bouvier, and she accepts him with her arms wide open. Right. So she so she's, validates his baby. Exactly. Un- so, totally lacks any constitutional principles whatsoever. I just, yeah, the girl needs to, like, just kill him at the end of a movie, really. <laughs> I mean, he needs to, if anybody deserves to die at this point, it's James Bond at this point in the 1980s too. Agree. Like, he should be a different double O's agent going into the nineties. Anyway, we have an even worse segment next because it's always say never again. These are our moral issues with the film that go beyond the issues with women. I'm going to still focus on the issue with women here because I didn't, I didn't honestly, I didn't see a lot of the racism that have, that's been in the previous bonds in this movie like he's friends with the mujahideen and they're kind of heroic in this film so all right that's that's good i did have casual racism in mine that's not good but anyway the second to last scene before the finale they're on this cargo plane getting away with uh, the bomb that bond set in amidst all of the heroin bags right so okay. he had to set a ticking clock because it's that point in the script and then the finale where you need a ticking <laughs> clock in the screenwriting books. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he had to detonate a 10-minute bomb. 
And he's flying off with it. And I'm like, why is he flying off with this bomb just so he's going to save himself at the last second? It's ridiculous. There's no reason for this bomb to be taking. Anyway, the woman that he's with the whole movie, Kara, she's a musician. And she comes in pretty handy throughout the film. She actually does some really good stuff that you wouldn't expect a musician to be able to handle herself doing. So she's pretty capable, like I said. She's not a kick-ass fighter or whatever. She's not a secret agent in her own right. But she's basically left by the Mujahideen guys. Just, all right, you stay put. We'll come back for you while we fight the Russians at the giant base, Russian base in Afghanistan. So that happens, but she can't wait. She sees Bond flying off on the cargo plane. She thinks he's flying off to his death. She follows him on a horse and immediately (laughs) falls off the horse. So what was cool about that is, all right, that's that's ridiculous. It's almost like the last Bond movie with uh, Sean Connery where the girl starts to shoot the machine gun and it, she's bowled over by it and falls off the giant uh, oil rig. Right. Not that bad here because she is, is aware of the situation. She jumps in a Jeep and then she's like the greatest driver ever. So she follows the Jeep to the cargo plane and in fast and furious style she drives into the back of the cargo plane however it leads the other super spy right to bond so she you know forces that finale she's looking in her rearview mirrors watching the fight the whole time right (laughs) not realizing that after bond wins and he gets to her and defuses the bomb of course in the nick of time They're flying into a mountain, straight into a mountain that Bond has to save them from. So not a really good reflection of women drivers. Yeah, Yeah, not great. I would uh, I would agree with that. And she had a it's not like one time it's not excusable, but you could maybe get past it. But to continuously put that same character in that role, especially when you have this history of this franchise littered with characters, both main characters and side characters, who are incredibly capable of driving any kind of vehicle. That's there's no reason. Great. Yeah, there's right. no reason for it. Like, why do you need that? Well, like, how, you write in the fact that you need yet another whammy moment in that sequence to where they're going to have this mid-air escape via parachute on the Jeep out the back of the plane and he hits the gas just in the nick of time to hit the you know road running i guess that all happened in my scene and it's ludicrous like but why do would you need the woman to right. fuck up seven different times to get you to each one of those spots right right that's you know. what i was gonna say like Ridiculous. i guess like maybe i could see the the merit of it in that you need to force these kind of resolutions these action pieces but at the same time that's kind of hitting the same trope over and over again is Always what makes it a stereotype. Again. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, How about your movie? I, I, I didn't have, okay. you know, I'm not going to harp on the, uh, the misogyny so much as I'll harp on a little bit of the casual racism, like I said, because aside from the horrible, horrible stereotype of racism that was present where an undercover agent for Hong Kong narcotics has bodyguards and security who, of course, are ninjas dressed in mm. full gi, like, that's mm. racist enough, but Oh, I've already addressed that in a different Bond episode of we've done. Ugh. Bond, like I alluded to in this movie, it's more of a moral issue than anything else. He's just a murderous psychopath. Oh, he wow. brutally kills a character named Killifer and just watches him be eaten by a shark after basically pushing him into the pool with the shark for no reason. Yeah, As a res- you, can't, you can't gently kill a character named Killifer. Right, manifest destiny being what it is You have to brutally kill... <laughs> Which is fine. You know what? If it was the one time, I could overlook it. But as a result of the killer for shark fiasco, M actually confronts Bond about that kill and the Mm -hmm. fact that he's letting other missions go to pursue Sanchez because Sanchez didn't kill Felix, but he Mm -hmm. fed him to a shark and then stopped the shark from eating him whole and Felix is just badly hurt. This sends Bond into a murderous psychopathic rage for the rest. Like, how dare you hurt my friend? Even though he's not dead and he's fully recovered and going to be fine by the end of this, I'm going to murder all of you and make you miss, make your families miss you. So wow. M actually revokes Bond's license to kill because of the killifer thing. So Bond takes off, and apparently, if you disagree with a, uh, an edict sent from down high in MI6, their response is to not negotiate with you; it's just to fire at you. So they try to kill Bond themselves. He escapes. That's never brought up again. Everything's forgiven, I guess, by the end of this. He follows this up by sneaking onto the bad guy's boat and just harpooning this poor son of a bitch henchman. Like, just Why right is that funny the to hear? <laughs> it's, 
I'm sorry. That's not the proper reaction. <laughs> he just, the guy just falls over the boat, harpoon in his chest. He's dead as shit for no reason before <laughs> swimming away, which causes this huge search commotion when he could have just snuck off. Like, that was the most unnecessary murder. <laughs> Bond could have just gotten in the water and swam away. But no, he ends this guy's life brutally in front of his friends and co-workers. He's dead. And then... He even goes as far as framing unnecessarily another bad guy named Crest to make it look like Crest was stealing money from Sanchez for no reason. It doesn't fit the plot at all, but as a result, Sanchez thinks Crest is trying to double-cross him, so he throws Crest into this hyperbaric pressure chamber, and Bond watches as Sanchez turns the pressure all the way up on Crest, and the guy's head literally explodes. Nice. So you had a Cronenberg ending yes! amidst Rambo's two, three, and four. Yes, exactly. It was like, why am I rooting for this man? I don't want him to win. He's a danger to society. It's an, he had some evil shit. He did, he did not do that in The Living Daylights. The Living Daylights felt much more like from Russia with Love, like Connery's, I think, second Bond outing or something. Right. It felt like that spy versus More of a spy, spy base, right. Yeah, it was not. It was not just the action movie shoot 'em up that your movie seemed to have been. But uh, wow, yeah, that's dark. That's it was dark very shit. dark. I didn't feel good watching this or rooting for the man. <laughs> he's abusing women. He's he's taking part in racism. Uh, he's just uh, killing fathers and brothers and sons. It's like extraction. Extraction. They use the cutaway <laughs> scenes from one guy shooting everybody up to cutaway scenes of, you know, Hemsworth shooting everybody up. It's just right. ridiculous. <laughs> like, like, just, we're, we're following this one plot line of the bad guy for a while, and then, of course, we just need a cutaway. Hemsworth shoots, like, five more guys. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get those body counts up. It's ridiculous. So, yeah, I guess the 1980s established the action movie genre as what it still is today. All right. We have to get into some funner segments. Thank God we have them. Thank God. Q only lives once. It is about the cars, the gadgets, and the tech of James Bond and Michael in the living daylights. We had some awesome, awesome innovations that are still kind of impressive to today. Good. Number one, he had wardrobe improvements. Like, he is going to be a sniper in the first sequence, right? The second sequence of the movie where he's at the opera anyway. He's in this beautiful tux with a you know white shirt underneath bow tie. He's able to fold it over until it's all black. I thought huh. that was the coolest thing, the coolest suit. That so it's like an a- inside out, like a, a double sided sweater vest, but it's a full tuxedo. It was awesome. It turned into like the Doctor Evil suit, huh. just about. It was brilliant. So that was the first. Uh, I would like the one first of those. innovation. I no, I would totally yeah. If I was a secret agent, I would demand one of those. <laughs> to be honest with you, but anyway, Q designs this uh, Russian pipeline escape pod, which was pretty badass. There's a boombox missile launcher as oh, one of nice. those silly gags in the beginning of the movie. Uh, there there are two scenes with Q because he has to introduce the new Aston Martin, which is beautiful, silver and black, one of the coolest cars of bond thus far i think and he also gives him like this keychain which is this it explodes it has stun gas if you whistle which he's used like 10 times in the last hour of the movie where bond just whistles to get the the little keychain that he left at a certain strategic spot to spray gas in the air and get the bad guy so he just whistles wherever he is and it responds and releases the gas or explodes or whatever. It huh. depends on what he whistles, you know. So the, the Q and him go over it in the beginning scene. The car, though, Mike, the car has a laser which cuts other cars in half uh, from the wheels. A laser from the wheels. It has a missile launcher, bulletproof glass, and of course, because he was expecting to be, you know, in a chase on the ice in Russia, <laughs> it has skis on it. So he lose. So it was, it was this crazy scene where he loses a, a a tire. So he uses the axle, Mike, the bare axle. The tire is shot off. He uses the axle to circle the bad guy car, like, and you think he's just swerving like uncontrollably. No, he cuts a hole in the ice, huh. and the to car sink him? to sink him. Wow! Look at and that. then he and then he puts up the skis. Or one ski in this case, because he still has the other tire, and he's able to to get away. Anyway, you have you have seagulls that are also cameras. You have glasses that are also binoculars, 
and uh, of course, you have a keychain that does everything. So everything Q gave Bond in your movie came into play at some point. Well, except for the boombox missile launcher. That was just a passing joke kind of thing. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Because this is the problem I had with Q, is that he shows up. He doesn't show up until after an hour into the movie, first of all. And he does so by basically sneaking into 007's hotel room at this casino he's in. But he comes with an explosive alarm clock, explosive toothpaste, <laughs> a camera with a palm reader that is... Clearly, in real life, just a camera hooked up to an actual calculator. But in the movie, it's a camera that's supposed to be a gun, and it also has a laser shooter. Okay. So explosive toothpaste. Yes. Let's. Can we dive into this? It's for made of plastic, please? apparently. But go ahead. <laughs> Isn't that something that you will probably misuse by accident? I, well, much more than you would use it, you know, in a real situation. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Mike. Lucky for James Bond, uh, that never comes up because none of these things are fucking used in the movie. <laughs> really? <laughs> they only exist in the scene for Q to introduce these new gadgets. I yeah. Listen, I was in and out, like I said. Maybe I missed it, but I did not see any of these gadgets actually used. And for good mm. reason. I guess if you have a hard enough time writing a script where the Asian bodyguards have to be ninjas, how are you going to casually work in the exploding toothpaste to be used realistically? So well, You can't use it realistically because <laughs> if you leave it at your your sink like he's always with women what if the woman used it the next morning and just explodes her head explodes like, you can't do that you can't just like walk around with it in your suitcase and then you take in a fight you take the suitcase out and go and shoot it at somebody it it's no one sense. of those things he wakes up the next morning with the woman the girl's already in the bathroom freshening up and he hears this her turn the water on and his eyes are just coming to for the morning and then he hears her uh, putting the toothpaste under the water and he's, his eyes bug out this darling get your rest <laughs> his eyes bug out and he starts running towards the bathroom this huge explosion comes up yeah i, I would i would have i would have appreciated that scene but yeah that was all i had with uh with q and his gadgets for uh q only lives once uh we should write a parody you know of james bond and all the all the gadgets go wrong all of them go hilariously wrong. i am in michael there's a reason though that tomorrow never dies and that's because these villains can't seem to kill it so let's talk about the bad guys plans and where they went wrong it's not that they can't seem to kill bond it's that they almost refuse to kill bond like at the beginning <laughs> I agree. there are three double o agents on this you know fake mission that's really just an exercise and of course they kill the first two double o's before they kill bond which is dumb like they're nothing too like these guys are supposed to be just as trained as bond and they go away in the first couple minutes yeah so it's just so stupid and then at the end of the movie they literally have kara drug bond like kara is you know, misled into thinking Bond's a bad guy. And Bond is drugged. He is captured. He's no longer useful to them in the plot. Like he had previously, you know, they, they thought he was going to kill John Reese davies character, this General Pushkin. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really going through the plot. But anyway, he does it in a fake way. I mean, the guy, they, they stage it together. So they're on the same team. But th- there's this whole th- They think they use Bond already. They have no other use for him. They should just kill him. Just fucking bop him on the head. He's done. Was it one of those things where they had to explain the evil plot first? Here's the thing. Like, they have him in an ambulance with this this giant container, this freezer, whatever, uh, with all this ice in there and, Mm -hmm. and a heart. That is just going boom, 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 boom. It looks like a, you know, a, a transplant heart. And the TSA guys look at the heart and they're like, ew. All right, just go. Just board your plane. <laughs> and it, the it's an animal heart, turns out. And they they're actually have all the diamonds that they're smuggling in the ice. So that's how I, they, they, they rationalize Bond being left alive for them to pull off that ruse. But it's stupid. Yeah, totally. That, that sounds like it makes That's like the lengths you have to go to if you're a bad guy whose purpose is to kill Bond, to keep him alive in those circumstances, is all sorts of mental gymnastics. <laughs> it's way easier just to get rid of him. You have to be great at mental gymnastics to write one of these scripts, <laughs> is what true. I'm finding. That's true. That's also a good point. I actually think Sanchez should be more memorable because, wow. spoiler alert, but within the first 22 minutes of this movie, he could have killed both Felix Leiter, who's a longtime Bond associate, and Felix's new wife. And he does at least maim Felix memorably by feeding him 
at least halfway to a shark and then sticking a note on his body that says he disagreed with something that ate him and <laughs> which is witty and funny and memorable. <laughs> Bond is behind the eight ball this entire movie, too. If it's yeah. not for Bouvier filling in on information, he would have no idea where Felix, where to go next to hunt down Felix. If it's not for some random woman behind the counter about uh, at the airport where he's supposed to return home from Felix's wedding, he would have never found out that Sanchez escaped. And he would have never found out that Felix got hurt. So essentially Sanchez won. It's just that Bond kind of lucked into foiling his plot. The only grave mistake Sanchez does make, and I, can, I guess we could also run working goldfingers here yes. where we would type out how we'd fix the problem with the bad guys two mistakes sanchez done makes one you fucking kill felix you don't feed a guy halfway to a shark and then pull him out and let him be maimed if I you're trying say, to get under the yeah. strand of bond kill felix but secondly he for no reason ends up trusting bond's bullshit story halfway through about how he's an ex mi6 agent and that he mm-hmm. doesn't have loyalties to england anymore and basically trusting bond is what makes him, you know, foil this big cocaine used in gasoline plot that is the actual thing that Sanchez is going for and how he's making his money. However, Bond isn't a murderous rampage. He's on a murderous <laughs> That's rampage true. That's for a fair the latter point. half of the film. Fair, and Sanchez fair is point. probably like, why would they hire a guy like this? This can't be a government employee. <laughs> they didn't find him on Monster.com. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, that, that yeah, it makes some sense. Uh, in terms of my movie, I kind of mentioned some things that I would have changed already. Like, just kill him. Like, right. I hate every, every one of these movies. Like, just kill him. It's, it's the whole Scott, you know, evil argument. But there's a couple more things. Like... You know, don't let Bond do your dirty work for you. Just, again, just kill him. But if you leave him alive long enough to do your dirty work, he's going to, you know, ruin your plan. Right. That's exactly what he does. Uh, You also, when you capture him, you you just have to know. The man has a watch that's a gadget. He has a keychain that's a gadget. You don't give him his own bag. In between transporting him from to and or fro, you don't give him his bag back. Like they give him his bag back, and he gets his, immediately he gets his keychain out, and he like gasses ten guys. I mean, it's the dumbest thing, and they do it in every movie. They they make him a prisoner, and they leave him with his watch on, and he it kills everybody with his watch. <laughs> you would think this life life saving heroics and the big economic saving heroics Bond has done up to that point in that world's history would be known to these big bad guys because they all seem to know who James Bond is anyway at some point. Right, he's got the reputation exactly. that precedes him <laughs> exactly, but none of them are aware of how he escapes. I bet that watch won't help him this time. <laughs> That's a really nice watch. <laughs> Where'd you get it? <laughs> that's hey, a, is that a laser? End of the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's wrap up here with one of the more fun segments. Uh, license to bill. We are tallying up and account for all the damage Bond caused and what it might cost. Michael, would you like to go first? Well, the Rock of Gibraltar is not in great shape <laughs> in my movie. <laughs> Just for FYI, a lot of things blow up up there. But two double O's, two double O's die there, so that's not good for MI6. The Russians just take a beating in my film. Like, you have at least five Russian cop cars. You got the whole opera, the edge of the opera is shot up. You have uh, a Russian tank. You have several several roadblocks where the Russian police and the Russian military are trying to stop Bond, mm-hmm. and he just like uses his missile launch, launcher and his Aston Martin to blow through the eighteen wheeler, and everything blows up from there. And then he drives through, and then he's on. He's even causing carnage when he's on the goddamn cello case, you know, going down the mountain. <laughs> like he he forces like these skiers to fly into like these sheds, like so these Russian countryside sh- sheds. <laughs> Get the shit kicked out of him. One is on the ice. One is on the ice. And it literally, Bond drives into it and he takes it with him. And he uses it as like Kevlar, Mike. It takes all the bullets. Because all these Russian tanks are shooting missiles at him. And this little shed stops all the missiles from hitting his Aston Martin. strong Russian wood. It's very strong Russian wood that he's somehow able to just get under and take with him on the ice, of course. But if, but th- he does get a tire shot out, so they made it a little bit realistic. Anyway, the an entire Russian military base just oh, no. blown to shit. Blown to shit. <laughs> That's no hundreds wonder, of millions. No wonder they lost that war. I mean, the Mujahideen just kicked their asses. 
a half a billion dollars of heroin, so that's good. Oh no! Poof, <laughs> and then you know, uh, uh, several jeeps that Bond crashes or, or the bad guys get crashed. A, uh, a tanker full of gasoline, and of course, one cargo plane that uh, flies into the mountain. But before that, he dropped the bomb. Remember, he had that for random bomb yes. that he fused on the plane. Yes, in a bag of fake heroin. Well, he dropped that on the bridge. You know that where the Russian military was pursuing the uh, Mujahideen, they're pursuing the good guys, his friends who helped him, and he drops it on the bridge, and it looks like the most majestic bridge in the history of <laughs> Afghanistan. Blows the shit out of that bridge, and all these uh, military uh, cars, you know, just fall down. Right. So not only are you well. ruining a landmark and a beautiful scenery, but you're also yeah. taking out government vehicles in the process that but can be hurt beyond repair. Somehow the movie isn't over at that point because we have to still get the arms dealer who I didn't even mention. He was just so it's such a nonsense part of this plot. Like this American guy who's this arms dealer is buying heroin with the Russian general who's faking out the uh, British intelligence. That's the whole plot. Right? <laughs> okay. It's ridiculous. Anyway, he's got to go kill those two guys at the end or capture them. And this guy's got like a booby trapped house of all these antique weapons, of course. Naturally. So. They blow the shit out of every single room of that house. So priceless antiques are just gone forever. Yeah, they shoot the shit out of it. And he's using, of course, he's leaving his keychain here and there. And it's blowing up. And it's just ridiculous. <laughs> that may You may have the biggest tally yet for any of the movies we've covered individually. In it's the a lot James of money. Bonds. Yeah, it is. That, that's easy. That's a lot of money. Probably, never mind the irreplaceable value and the, uh, you know, the priceless things destroyed. But on top of the things that you can tabulate, that's got to be easily... $10 billion plus, no problem. Oh, no MI6 question. has to cover the tab. You have a half a billion dollars in heroin right there. So <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And I was actually surprised in my movie, the, they made a passing comment about the value of the cocaine gasoline, which never mm -hmm. mind the guy that came up with the process of how to turn cocaine into gasoline and then back into cocaine. He's dead and shot dead by Sanchez at one point. So <laughs> that information and science is gone forever. Uh, priceless he, science right, <laughs> right he said he makes it makes a passing comment about how that's only an 80 million dollar write-off or a 50 million dollar write-off which i thought mm. was surprisingly low so maybe it's very cheap cocaine that sanchez was peddling in but yeah we huh. have we have the usual bond uh license to bill stuff here we have uh like i said at the beginning the the big shootout to start we have the terrain being all torn up random crates and barrels as in a jeep wrangler all beaten up and shot at and exploded uh we have this ridiculous nonsensical shootout at the ocean exotica where untold <laughs> amounts of damage to rare aquatic life has happened and is probably oh, no. irreplaceable <laughs> The guards come in, they see Bond took out one of the, the security guards, so a second security guard comes in and just starts firing at him, of even course. though it's covered in glass and water everywhere. Oh, <laughs> so all brilliant. those sea life is dead. Uh, oh. We have a giant boat, which was commandeered by Bouvier specifically for the point of steering it directly into a dock to create a diversion. <laughs> So that dock is destroyed. That boat is destroyed just because Bond needed a couple minutes of everyone looking in one direction. Of course. Yep. Um, the oldest trick in the book costs $18.5 billion. We have the uh, the cocaine lab warehouse where all the science turning the cocaine into gas uh, from Sanchez's henchmen. That's all destroyed and set on fire. Uh, the entire process of selling coke, like I said, as fuel, yeah. that's destroyed. That's easily over a billion because we have the big Mack trucks that this all ends in this big chase scene getaway where the gasoline cocaine is driven out by these four or five Mack trucks because the warehouse and the science building is on fire. So wow. Sanchez is trying to save his property and there's this big chase scene where James Bond ends up commandeering one of the Mack trucks and driving it on its one side and blowing up all the other Mack trucks. Everything blow up, blow up, blow up, blow up. Uh, and, uh, yeah. you know... Multiple men with families were brutally murdered for no reason whatsoever, all because this guy's friend got hurt. So the cost in lives is even more. <laughs> and just uh, hurt, by the way. Again, I, I need to underscore this. James mm -hmm. Bond went off the deep end because his friend Felix got hurt. Not dead. Fully recovered. He got half eaten. Half eaten. <laughs> He's not wholly eaten. <laughs> Wow. He's, he's smiling by the end of the movie. They're cracking jokes. Meanwhile, some poor father making $40,000 a year on some asshole's boat has a harpoon through his chest at the bottom of the ocean now. 
Ran- the random henchman. Nobody <laughs> speaks about the random henchman but us. So I'm glad we're doing this. That was licensed to Bill. Uh, and I'm not going to watch a movie, actually. I, I said that earlier, like I might have. Yeah, no, I think I'll we might have talked ourselves skip. out of it. I definitely watched it in college, Twenty, what is it, 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, so that I don't have to watch it again. I've seen every Bond movie now after The Living Daylight, so I'm, I'm kind of proud of myself. Good job, Michael. Good job. And you were, you were <laughs> resistant to those, so I'm being serious. That is a good job. You have not been the biggest fan of the older no. Bond movies. So. Octopussy was easily the worst, by the way. <laughs> Terrible. All right. Well, the James Bond character study will return in June. We're going to be doing Pierce Brosnan episodes, like we said. There's only one good one of those, people. <laughs> so It had the video game that was good. Exactly. Good exactly. Maybe we'll just play Goldeneye on Twitch, and that'll be our James Bond, Pierce Brosnan character study. But uh, <laughs> as far as the Timothy Dalton episode, as always, we want to hear from you, your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns. When's the last time you saw any of the Dalton, the two Dalton Bond movies, and what are your thoughts, or do you remember any, having any thoughts about them? And you can also leave comment about anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. You could leave us those. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook. Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts, including and especially Apple podcasts. And if you are quarantining with us and trying to kill some time, we cannot thank you enough for doing so. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review and just tap the five stars on the Apple podcast app, that would truly mean a lot to us. Michael, what is coming next from us in the immediate future? And like Timothy Dalton said to every woman in his two movies, what are some <laughs> words of wisdom that you can leave us with? Well, uh, what's coming next is an Oscar Race Checkpoint episode. It's a Mike, Mike, and Oscar weekly episode. That's as far as we've gone with our programming. But those are our usual weekly news and variety shows that we hit up, whether it's award season or not. And thank God we have those because of what's going on in the world right now. I mean, both of those have been just vital with all the infighting between studios and blockbusters. And yeah, absolutely. We absolutely need them for all the news that's dropping. So, I mean, I got enough awards season type stories. We got the five bloods. We're going to talk about Spike Lee. We're going to talk about uh, a lot of new movies that are actually being put on the schedule now and, and kind of firmed up. We think, we hope amidst this nightmare we're living in. So that's and Pete where Davidson's at. Oscar campaign is back, that's baby. Right. That's right. It looks good. The trailer looked great for the King of Staten Island. So all of these references played four years from now when somebody listens to this episode, probably you're going to sound silly. I'll be amazed if anyone makes it to this part of these episodes. We were so starved for a good movie that we were hyping up the King of Staten Island as an Oscar. Right. What the hell happened in 2020? Of a worldwide shutdown. Anyway, Mike, I think both of us are as giggly and as insane as we've been in a while. Accurate. We're shot is what I'm trying to get at. And I think I don't know what is wise to do and how to get out of this head space, but we need to do it and we need to do it soon. I'm going to go find a waterfall and prove TLC was full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) They don't tell you you can't find waterfalls. Yeah. They just say, don't I, go chasing them. I heard what I heard from them. <laughs> so you're just going to refute 1990s pop songs. I'm just going to take a picture and, find... and just tag Chili and yeah. T-Boss on Twitter and be like, what now? Your move, TLC. That's how you're going to regain your sanity. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I, all right. My words of wisdom, fine. My words of wisdom. I'm just going to keep listening to that aha song until I'm finally <laughs> sick of it. Because that was the one saving grace of this whole enterprise. <laughs> so our sanity is doing just fine. Guys, when reality sucks, you can come watch these movies and you put on your, I guess, tuxedos with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make awards season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you very soon. See you.